0: Welcome to our podcast series, Elected Ed, in which we talk about issues affecting the everyday governing environment for local elected officials throughout North Carolina. We're coming to you from our studio here at the UNC School of Government in Chapel Hill. I'm Patrice Rossler, Manager of Elected Official Programming here with the school's Center for Public Leadership and Governments. Today we're talking about some of the risk of getting old. It's not about somebody like me standing in front of the refrigerator door when it's open just wondering why I'm there. We're exploring how interagency collaborations can help protect older adults from abuse, neglect, or exploitation. Our guests are faculty member Meredith Smith, who specializes in laws related to adult guardianship, competency, and similar issues that are overseen by the clerks of Superior Court. And Christy Preston, former director of social services in Stokes and Surrey counties, and who is now director of the School of Government's Adult Protection Network. Thank you both for joining me today. Hi, Patrice. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yes, thanks for having us. Meredith, tell us about the idea of an adult protection network. How did that come about?
1: Well, it really was an evolution. Uh, My colleague here, who now Dean Amy Wall uh, and former faculty member here at the School of Government and I, uh, both sort of worked in similar areas. I was doing a lot of work around adult guardianship and competency proceedings. Amy did a lot of work with Adult Protective Services. And most days we felt like we were just like the little boy with our finger in the dike, hoping that the dike didn't break. We were each sort of responding to our relative sort of client groups, Amy's Adult Protective Services, County Department of Social Services services, uh, being her client group, my client group, clerks of Superior Court who are judges in those types of proceedings, we were sort of responding To what we were getting from the field. Um, And we often found ourselves sort of traipsing down the hallway to one another's offices trying to figure out, hey, wait a minute, okay, this thing that's affecting my client group is also affecting your client group. And we found ourselves collaborating more and more. Around the same time, representatives from the clerks of the Superior Court reached out and sort of expressed a similar feeling. How do we make ourselves more helpful to our community by working with others? We're seeing these sort of hallway conversations happening in the courthouse among different officials and trying to provide a more collaborative response to issues facing older adults and particularly older adults who lack capacity. And they reached out to us and said, hey, can we try to be sort of creative about a more thoughtful response, a more holistic response, a more collaborative response that brings community actors together in a way that addresses these pressing needs among older adults in our community. And so Amy and I sort of saw it from our end in that we were already sort of doing this collaboration. And then we heard from our clients that what they really needed in the field was a better roadmap, a better framework for collaborating at the county level. And so where we initially sort of decided uh, and were sort of reached out to by the clerks to think about writing a manual to kind of help other people within the system understand what the various roles and responsibilities were uh, among the actors in the system, the project sort of quickly evolved from there.
0: (laughs) So I'm picturing us here in our building where you run into somebody in the hallway You know, we've been through COVID where nobody was around, but now you have these opportunities to interact. And I can picture... At the local level, you've got an agency here, you've got the court system there, you've got somebody over here at some other nonprofit, so they're not running into each other the way you and Amy did here. So it probably
1: adds a layer of work to collaborate. Absolutely, absolutely. And what we were seeing, and I think what the clerks felt acutely is that people were ending up in their offices at the end of the road, at moments of real crisis. And so the question was, how do we get upstream? How do we collaborate, get out of our offices, provide resources to the individuals in the community who need assistance upstream um, before they end up in crisis in the court system and need the assistance of a guardian to protect them from exploitation or to provide support uh, on exercising decision-making. And so that was the piece that we had to take it out of the office and sort of into the field and and get outside of everybody's building. Go out to the real world.
0: Yes. Which leads me to you, Christy, because that's where you have lived and breathed and had your being Mm -hmm. over the course of your career. Tell us from your standpoint,
2: formerly at the local level, how did these issues present to you? Uh, Patrice, in much the same way that Meredith just described. What you see on the local level is that agencies and communities that serve this population of vulnerable adults are still very much siloed, even when they try really, really hard not to be. Uh, Just due to the nature of the work, the stress, the complexity of the cases, agencies that are serving these folks. they lack the time. They lack um, the resources to be able to truly uh, make meaningful connections with other disciplines uh, in this in this community. The cases are more and more complex than they've ever been in adult protective services. You add in COVID and the uh, large amounts of turnover that are occurring in just about every profession that so works in this field. Recruitment, worker recruitment, Retention, those kind of recruitment, recruitment. Uh, we're still hearing from counties that retention and recruitment are major issues. And all of those things can have a devastating impact on the services that actually get provided in the field to vulnerable adults. It also leads to a situation where uh, there's a duplication of efforts uh, among the professionals in the field And these are busy, busy folks. When you have an adult protective services social worker who makes a home visit to evaluate an adult for alleged abuse or neglect or exploitation, you have law enforcement who sends out a police officer to investigate the exact same set of allegations. You have home health agencies and medical professionals, and they are all coming at providing services to this individual from a very different place, but all with the same goal in mind of providing protective services if we don't collaborate if we don't get out of our silos it's it's simply a duplication of efforts and nobody nobody in this field has time to duplicate their efforts and
0: i'm guessing from the client standpoint that can be very confusing absolutely mm. i've had this conversation already don't you all talk to each other absolutely i personally have heard that i bet you have Thank you for that clarification, Christy. It makes it real for our listening audience what they're going through. And the other thing that I think adds a layer of complexity in this point in time is how North Carolina's population is getting so much older. Mm -hmm. Um, I was looking at a report just yesterday, literally, from the Division of Aging about the percentage of our population that's over the age of 60 Mm -hmm. based on the 2020 census if I remember the numbers correctly, it was was 17% of North Carolina's population now is over the age of 60. And in the 100 counties, if you look at the 100 counties, 85 of those counties have more population that's over 60 than under 17. Mm. And so you're looking at what i It looked to me like profound shifts in the age demographic with more elderly over the age of 60 as well as older old people
1: right it just it it reinforces the need to use our resources our precious resources as efficiently and effectively as possible and so that's really why this focus on collaboration thoughtfulness efficiency uh, maintaining and using resources in in that very targeted way to respond to the need in the field is so critical yes
0: and it's a moving
1: target Mm -hmm. you know it's evolving
0: all the time Meredith no at one point you got a grant for doing some of this work can you talk about how that might have shifted the focus of Where you and Amy Wall started with this issue. Absolutely.
1: We've come so far, it's hard to think (laughs) back where we actually started, which is the clerks approached us and said, Can you write a manual? Can you have some written materials that we can give out to people when they show up in the courthouse to help them understand the network of services and supports that are available in the community um, to respond to instances of abuse, neglect, and exploitation? And we said, Great, sure. We're the School of Government. Manuals are our bailiwick. We are happy to start there. But um, some really smart professionals here at the School of Government collaborated with Amy and I, and they said, well, maybe we should get out in the field and sort of ask people what they really need. And so we did a road trip around the state. Yeah, yes. I know. Um, we we got Amy and I got in the car, and we traveled around the state, and we met with communities from the coast to the mountains. We got different actors involved in the system in the room, from judges to clerks to social services, workers and attorneys, guardian ad litem attorneys. We got everyone sort of who's got a touch point on this issue in local communities and asked them what they needed. And really, when we came back and we tried to distill down all that feedback, what we heard were sort of two categories of things. One, the actors in the system wanted to better understand what the other actors in the system could do and couldn't do. Because where there is a lack of understanding, what we would realize is that people would get frustrated with others in the system and say, when somebody called and said, well, I can't do that, or that's not my role, Role. And so better understanding what are the legal limitations, the legal authority of each actor within the system to respond would enable everybody to sort of understand their role and better provide services and supports for that vulnerable adult at the center of the case. And then the second thing that we heard was that they wanted to better connect to other actors in the system. They felt, Like Christy said, they felt siloed. They felt like they were all sort of you know, spinning their wheels alone in their offices and that they weren't able to sort of all gather and think about strategically, what are the needs of this individual? What's the best way for the community to respond given what uh, their legal authority is, their resources are, uh, and provide support? So instead of ultimately, we we ended up producing that manual. um, And it is- there is a manual. There is a manual. (laughs) And it is available on our Adult Protection Network website for free, um, which is a great product of the grant, is that um, it is available to anyone on that site for free. We were able to produce a number of tools and resources and quick reference guides really to go at that first component of, of understanding what the roles are in the various actors in the system. If you don't want to read the 300 page manual, <laughs> um, there are a number of checklists and flowcharts and guides on the site that will sort of serve in that quick reference, easy access helping those actors in the system understand. But the second evolution of the project was really to get at that connect piece. Ultimately the adult protection network is what came out of it. Yes, it Is the manual? It is the resources, but it has also enabled us to stand up what Christy is now running, which is a help desk, which is a sort of a call center, an email center, but also a sort of outreach center where we're there responding to calls, responding to the questions that come up in the field about how do I better collaborate to respond? Who are the other people in my community in my county who are doing this work? We have a directory of professionals doing the work. We have a map on the website that shows, okay, what counties have multidisciplinary teams? Does my county have a multidisciplinary team? It just is sort of a touch point at the start of any sort of collaborative work to go and see who else is doing this work and how do I connect with them and who are they and and how do we start or build on the work that's already being done in our communities. So
0: Meredith, you're raising a term that we haven't touched on yet, yes. and that <laughs> is the multidisciplinary team. So you have the manual, you have all the materials, Christy, it sounds to me like what this is leading to is a different way of practicing in the community.
2: Absolutely. So tell um, us about that. What sure. what does that look like? Sure. My role in the project is actually to help counties create a multidisciplinary team. Uh, to support the work they're doing in adult protective services. And basically, a, a multidisciplinary team is a group of individuals from various professions who meet together to address a common problem in their community. In this case, adult protective services matters. Multidisciplinary teams in this world are made up generally of professionals from social services, law enforcement, the medical field, mental health, really any discipline that touches the lives of of vulnerable adults in our communities. And so my job at the network is to be available to counties to uh, answer their questions. I've made site visits. I've attended their meetings. And really my job is twofold. It's to either help counties create a team or to help them strengthen their existing team. Uh, some of the work that I've been doing recently is helping some counties who pre-COVID uh, established their teams, but who COVID negatively impacted their teams and My job has been to help them get back going, get back in the game and start meeting again and and strengthen really the work that they do.
0: So that leads us to an interesting sort of sidebar, I think, and that is you mentioned that some counties have these. So what if you don't have it, but you like what you're listening to here and you want to pursue maybe doing this in your own community. How do you get started with that? What's the
2: first step? Um, well, first of all, you need to find out if your county has a team or if you've had a team in the past. And oftentimes, uh, the director of the Department of Social Services will readily have that information for people that are interested in starting a team. If they want to reach out to us at the help desk on the School of Government's website, we're happy to um, help people find others in the community who may be doing that work. Uh, but really, a, a good first step would be to contact the director of social services in your county. Excuse me, Meredith. I didn't mean
1: to. Interrupt no, that's no okay. I was going to say you can also go to our Protect Adults website where we have a directory of essentially professionals in the field who have said, I am involved in this work. I'm interested in doing this work. You can search by county. Um, So if, for instance, you're in Anson County and you're looking to see who else is out there doing this work, you can go on our website and see, uh, look at the map. And if if Anson County's orange, it means they have a multidisciplinary team. You can click on that county, see the professionals who are involved in that work and reach out to them directly. So
0: it allows you to to reach them directly. Exactly, okay. exactly.
1: Um, and you can also, if your county is not orange, if it's gray, meaning you don't currently have a multidisciplinary team operating, you can still search and see what other professionals in your community have expressed an interest in doing this work um, and filter uh, by your county and, and see others who are, uh, you know, have registered and their contact information would be available on the okay. site. I think if you Google uh, UNC School of Government Adult Protection Network, that'll it'll pop up. The website is protectadults.s.
0: So because this is is a podcast that is geared towards elected officials, I'd like to explore the role of elected officials in doing this kind of collaboration because they, whether they're municipal, county, tribal councils, or school boards, elected officials at the local level are in places where they see things that happen. They see things that they might think would operate better a different way and they have a bully pulpit. So talk to us a little bit about what a role of an elected board might be in the adult protection network scheme.
2: I think elected officials at the local level, um, generally probably most are familiar with the concept of the community child protection team and the child fatality prevention team. Both of those teams exist in all 100 counties in North Carolina and those teams typically have an appointed local official on those teams. And this model of a multidisciplinary team has been around for a very long time in the world of child welfare. And our goal, of course, is to bring this model to the world of adult protection. I think elected officials, if they're familiar with the Community Child Protection Team and the Child Fatality Prevention Team, then they are aware of the really good work that comes out of those teams and would be interested in doing the same type of work with Adult Protective Services.
0: So in the previous part of our discussion, Christy, I think we touched on the fact that a good place to start would be talking to the county director of social services. Yes. So whether I'm a municipal official or a tribal member of the tribal council or a county commissioner, I can still pick up the phone and call the county department of social services and ask to speak to the director That's correct. about this. Mm-hmm. So church affiliations, nonprofits, mm-hmm. yes. regardless of your lens that you're coming at adult protection through. You can start with the DSS director, for example. Yes.
1: And you hit on one of the beauties of multidisciplinary teams is that they really can reflect the needs of the community and the resources in the community. So it may be that for that particular community, having DSS and a church leader and uh, mental health or a home health aide at the table is sort of are the critical pieces that are needed to get that work started at the outset. And what we usually see is they sort of start small and grow over time, start small with a a sort of strong uh, group of advocates who are really interested and motivated by this work. And I think the elected officials can really be sort of gassed to that fire and sort of supporting and motivating and uh, like standing in that bully pulpit for and advocating for this work, particularly that it's difficult and it's, uh, it's a piece of adult protective services work when you've already got a full load and then you're saying, OK, on top of this, you've got to do this difficult work of collaboration on top of it can feel overwhelming. So really ha- providing that support, providing that motivation, that advocacy for this work for better outcomes can be a, an incredibly important piece of their role.
0: That's a super suggestion, Meredith, because one thing I know about elected officials is that they like to talk <laughs> and they get asked to talk in a lot of places. And so the more they talk about the needs of the elderly and stay connected to the service agencies that are working in this field, The more the conversation gets stirred up, the more motivation there is to put the resources behind it.
1: Absolutely, and I think back to sort of where we started in this conversation where it's just people showing up in the courthouse who are sort of on their last leg and they're in, in crisis and they're filing for guardianship because they don't know what else to do. And and having this collaborative team where an elected official is ba- basically able to say or refer people to you know this multidisciplinary team and they can have a more tailored, sort of appropriate response that hopefully catches people, like I said, upstream before we get to like crisis levels you know, again, is an important outcome of this work.
0: Thank you all so much for joining in this conversation today. Before we close it out, is there anything that you want to add to the conversation that we haven't touched on in the questions that we've discussed?
1: I would just say, I think that this work in North Carolina is evolving. Um, As Christy said, You know, with regard to Child Protective, it's it's a model that's been around for some time. Uh, One of the big challenges that we see communities facing right now is around information sharing and around confidentiality. North Carolina does not have a law that allows for the free flow of information among these teams, and that is a pretty significant hurdle that exists, that does not exist in child welfare. There are um, models out there in other states Uh, where they have passed legislation to sort of address these issues and to um, allow teams to conduct a more meaningful type of case review, which I think we see a lot of these teams really desiring to conduct case review versus sort of looking at it in a systemic or sort of um, broad-based issue kind of way. And I would say that's probably a, a pretty significant hurdle that we see teams facing right now is around that confidentiality information sharing piece, which sort of goes back to the role of elected officials and sort of being solutions or oriented and and looking for ways to make change in their communities if they are interested in this work to try to collaborate around policy solutions related to that issue.
0: That would be a significant hurdle. Do you know of any interest groups that are working on changing the law?
1: There are a number of teams out there who, particularly we see it um, among teams who have been established for a couple of years and they've sort of gotten over the initial hurdles of formation and and sort of figuring out who's gonna be at the table and what are the gonna be the rules for our collaboration and they're really getting into the meat of the work and they're looking at doing case reviews and they realize because of our confidentiality laws 90% of the team has to walk out of the room and only 10% of the team can remain because only those 10% are able to share information about a particular case. For example, there's a team in Guilford County that they're hitting that spot. And so they reached out to us and said, Hey, if we were to try to look at legislative options for this, what are potential solutions? And so we started thinking about policy options and drafting a model that is really mirrored on the child welfare system about around information sharing. And they've been really interested in pushing that forward. But I think it's something that we hear across the state with all teams and saying, okay, now we've gotten to the point where we want to really work active cases and share information around specific cases. And we want to bring in a, broader base than just law enforcement and APS. How do we do that without violating confidentiality laws?
2: Yes, I agree. I think that's the most common uh, issue that gets brought up to me is how do we uh, navigate the confidentiality rules uh, so that we can help real people in our communities.
0: So just out of curiosity, is this an issue that came up in the child fatality task forces as well?
1: You know, I don't know about that. And I wonder, I mean, they have a statutory model that allows them to share information. It's very prescriptive about who can be at the table and how you share information and rules about uh, keeping information confidential among those authorized group members that just quite frankly does not exist in the adult protection world. And so um, it it does create another challenge to doing this important work. So what we see often as a result, uh, where, you know, obviously there are paths to getting consent from a client that they're trying to serve um, but what we see is teams then zoom out and say okay we're going to look at systemic issues rather than more case specific examples um, and look at are there hurdles in the system that we can collaborate to address that make working a case among the legal you know landscape we currently have more effective and so they don't discuss specific cases about a specific individual but they look at more systemic issues and try to address them those systemic issues in a collaborative way but ideally I think I think most teams, what we hear is they want to be able to do both. They want to be able to do the systemic review, look at the big picture problems, do the advocacy, do the education and the community and the outreach um, and the prevention uh, mechanisms. But they also want to be able to work a case and have that law enforcement and APS social worker collaborate in a way where they both go out together to the, the older adult and, and they're able to get that information and come back to the team and share it among the professionals who are going to be able to provide the supports and services to assist that individual in, a, you know, in an expeditious way.
0: So I guess one step at the time. Yes, <laughs> the Yes. Yeah, there's a stop.
1: lot of opportunity here <laughs> is the way that I think here. about it. Yeah. Um, the the, the uh, work is really important and the possibilities are great for better outcomes. So Endless options.
0: Yes. Our guests for this podcast have been our faculty member Meredith Smith and Christy Preston, director of the Adult Protection Network. I want to give special thanks to our incredible studio producer, Paul Bonner. If you like this podcast, you can like and subscribe to it on our website. We're also on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Podcast. If you have ideas for additional topics, you can reach me at prossler at sog.unc.edu. That's P-R-O-E-S-L-E-R at sog.unc.edu unc.edu